Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. My name's Simon Nameby and today I'm going to be doing a deep dive with Jamie Taylor. Jamie is a coach, a coach developer and has studied coaching science and talent development over a great many years. But, but more importantly to me, Jamie is someone that I often have in the back of my head. There's a few people I have in the back of my head when I read something new and exciting and, uh, and I, I want to just dive in and get on, on with it. And Jamie's one of the people that I think of which will stimulate me to think critically about what it is that I'm about to, to get stuck into. And it's like, where are the problems? What, what's good about it? Why is it good about it? What's, what's wrong with it? Why is it wrong? Uh, and what, what can I use from this personally? So that he's always sort of played that role in my head and, and I'm really fascinated to have a conversation with him today. So we're going to have a two-part conversation. We'll, we'll do a, a half hour on PCDEs, which are psychological characteristics of developing excellence. And uh, then we'll get into a, a little bit of a, a deep dive into Jamie's personal coaching career and, and some of his thoughts around coaching, coach education, coaching science, that kind of thing. So Jamie, welcome to the pod. How are you? Yeah, thank you, Simon. It's nice to be introduced both as old and grumpy. I, uh, <laughs> that's a really nice introduction. Thank you. That's my favourite kind of people uh, these days. I think it's because uh, that's what I'm developing into, which is, uh, which is quite good. So, um, yeah, I, I wanted to talk to you because there, there aren't too many resources out at the minute about um, psychological characteristics of developing excellence. I think they're a really useful tool for coaches and the word is starting to spread. The, obviously, the research is all out there. Uh, and that's something we'll get into a little bit later. But um, I thought this would be a really good forum f- to to explain a little bit about what they are in depth because there isn't much out there in, in the more accessible formats of podcasts and blogs and that kind of thing. It's much more in the research. Um, and from someone who's working quite closely with the people who developed it and, and in practice yourself. So could you just explain a little bit about what PCDs are and and how they are used by coaches? Look, first of all, I think it's, I suppose it's important to credit the people whose ideas they are, because they're certainly not my ideas, they're not, uh, not constructs that I was involved in, but the body of, uh, of work that, you, that we are referring to is that of uh, Dave Collins and, and Anya McNamara over probably, what, the last 15, 20 years. It's uh, really, really well-researched, really, uh, and... Um, Effectively, they're a series of trait and state-based characteristics, and I'll come back to what that means, that underpin performance across a variety of domains. Um, and they're often referred to, and, and Dave and Anya will often refer to them as the idea of a deck of cards, that is, a deck of cards where you collect things and then you choose when to deploy them at the appropriate time. And ideally, a performer... Uh, that's athlete, dancer, whatever performance domain we're talking about, when they reach the the highest level of performance, they've got the ability to be able to deploy and use the right card, the right skill, the right characteristic at the right time for the right challenge. Now, I I referred to the idea of trait and state-based because there's, I suppose, in psychology more generally, there's a bit of a, there's a debate about what is trait-based, that is, I am normally like this, a characteristic, uh, or at least a fundamental thing that that you and I will tend to be like. And then you have this idea of state-based. Therefore, when I'm in this particular situation, I will behave like this. 
Now, the reason why they are both trade and state based is because, coming from a pragmatic point of view, that they they both are, that it doesn't necessarily make a great deal of difference if we're going to make make a clear distinction between the psycho behavioural characteristics of somebody, whether they are state or trait based. That is, we will normally use this uh, this um, behaviour across a variety of circumstances or it's state-based, I will use it in this particular circumstance. So therefore, they sit across both of those things. Now, the research that both Dave and Anya have completed, and look, I've added a very tiny little bit to that bit of research at the very back end of this, has shown that if you are going to reach the top, then you're very likely to need this full deck of cards this full range of characteristics and skills that are going to help you meet the challenges that you will inevitably face as you're progressing towards elite performance. And ultimately, they underpin talent development. So I think for, for me, the, the thing that brought home to me was you, you uh, wrote a paper, um, coulda, shoulda, didn't you? And it was, it was it's quite an interesting paper in, in many ways because a lot of the... Um, and you talk about this when you talk about the research is that a lot of the research has been on those that made it and you can have all sorts of survivorship biases, which is, you know, that they made it in spite of what happened or, you know, there are other factors not, not accounted for. And the coulda, shoulda, didn't was really good because it was about the people who never actually quite made it to the, to the very top. I mean, they made it to a good level, but not to the very top. And, and what I found particularly interesting was the, the talk around PCDEs within that, within that paper. And um, I thought that, that was very interesting for me. I, I'm all about stories. So I'll tell you a little quick, quick story is that I did wine tasting on the weekend and my idea of tasting is horrendous. I've got no idea what juniper berries or uh, jasmine tastes like. And the guy was sort of going through, but he, he had a really good framework because it went from a very base level, which was like, you know, is it a red fruit or a, a green fruit? And then he had a list of the red fruits and then it sort of went down and actually you could start to pick out by looking, if someone shows you the framework, you can look at it and go, Oh, right. Okay. No, I actually do know that is, it tastes like red fruit and it's probably more like berries than it is like, uh, uh cherries for example. And it, and it starts to, to give you that. And so when I read that research, I thought, Oh, this is quite interesting. Looked at the PCDEs and then it gives you a framework to work from. So how was, how was that? Um, important in the research of those that never quite made you know what what were the things in the framework that were sort of important what sort of skills were were important for those people that never quite made it and that they could have or should have developed well I think um, I actually think that the the idea of wine tasting is probably a nice little segue into this because clearly and um, I I don't know my uh, my apples from my grapes so I'm not going to be great at wine tasting clearly but (laughs) the idea that um, we're not talking about completely distinct factors where, right, you have this and therefore you don't have that. So let's say we take um, goal setting and quality practice, so two PCDEs. Now, there's clearly an awful lot of crossovers between those two things. So we're not talking about distinctly different and completely um, boxed off characteristics. They're very, uh, they interrelate with one another. So what the, what the particular bit of research found, if I was going to sum it up, was that we, we took 10, uh, 10 football coaches, 10 rugby coaches, all very, very experienced in talent development at the elite end of the game. 
and we asked them to identify the reasons why three players that in their experience were absolute dead certs to go on and make it at the very highest levels of the professional game in both sports, why they fell away. Now, there's a fair, a fair few different distinct things that were identified as being reasons, but by far and away the most prevalent one was the mental side. It was a lack of a given psychological characteristic. Um, there were, I mean, there were a couple of occasions when things like overcommitment, as in too much commitment, which meant that players were training, uh, doing a full day of training at a club and then going and doing even more and just breaking down physically, mentally as a result of that. But that was not, um, I mean, we're talking about a couple of cases out of the 60 players that we that uh, they're involved that were mentioned in the study. Clearly, that across both, I mean, an enormous element of this was a lack of commitment or a lack of commitment-like behaviour, which is could be identified as being a lack of motivation as well. Other things that were identified were things like a lack of self-regulation. That is, I can regulate myself, my emotions. A lack of a focus at training and a lack of coping skills as well. Now. Uh, on the flip side of that, there were other factors that were identified from a systemic, that is from a talent system point of view. So talent systems, on, and interestingly, this was a significant difference between the rugby and the football sample, was that the rugby sample, particularly important to the conversation we're having now, was that there was a very high prevalence in that of a, a lack of challenge, or when they got to the very highest level, um, a very steep step change in challenge. So they go from playing schoolboy rugby where they're brilliant, 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 and then whack, they're in a first-team uh, first team squad and they just can't cope with that difference. Now, clearly you can look at that from both sides. Is that a lack of coping skills or is it the pathway's fault for not uh, giving them an adequate step, step-by-step -step approach to challenge level? Interestingly, not so prevalent in football, partly because it's a lot easier to mediate the challenge level. Players are in a more professional environment and so on. But effectively, the, go back to the idea that the key fundamental blocker was a lack of a given psychological characteristic for the players. Is there a way that those sorts of things could be um, identified earlier? So now, obviously, in that research, uh, in that uh, situation they they weren't probably aware of the PCDEs, and so uh, if they were aware of them from the very beginning, to to, to start to identify um, the areas amongst the players, and then start to qu quantify where they sort of sit and who needs amplifying a little bit on goal setting, who needs maybe to damp down on commitment or or things like that. Is that is that the sort of thing that you can start to do once you once you start working with these? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean. Every coach I've ever met has a really clear awareness of the importance of what's between somebody's ears when it comes to developing performance. So I don't think it's necessarily just a case of coaches not being aware of PCDs because there is an awareness that is what's between somebody's ears really, really matters when it comes to developing performance. What the PCDs give you is a comprehensive framework and uh, theory of practice to operate from. It's a way of approaching psychological development. 
Now, there are, um, there are tools you can use. So, for example, there's a PCDEQ, um, which is a formative assessment tool. Now, formative means you use it for uh, improvement-based purposes or performance-based improvement purposes rather than judgment purposes. So a player, an athlete, a performer can use it as a means to self-evaluate where they are at uh, psychologically. And flip side is that that can then be used by the coach to understand where they're at. That can help form a needs analysis for a given individual. Uh, flip side of that as well is that coaches can see where somebody is at psychologically. The, and the external perception of the coach, particularly an experienced one, if they and if they know the athlete well, because it's not a given that just what you observe is what's going on between somebody's ears, <coughs> excuse me, that you can then deploy interventions to support people. I think that one of the problems that occurs, particularly in sport, is that performance or early high performance relative to peers masks a lot of the weaknesses. And if you are a coach that adopts a purely strength-based approach, that is, I'm only focused on what somebody is really good at, in my view, and certainly in, in, uh, in line with some of the other academic work I've done, it leaves players, athletes, performers very, very vulnerable later on because you're operating the here and now rather than considering what the long term is for that person. Uh, and that sort of came out in the research, didn't it? Because it was the key factor that ultimately led that, you know, we were sort of saying that that didn't, that they never made it was because they were fundamentally lacking in one of the key characteristics of, of psychological um, behaviors for, to, to make it to the top. So um, I think it's quite interesting because there are quite a few different um, tools that appear in, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but um, I think it's, there's quite a few tools that are appearing that are, assess people's personalities or psychological traits that I think aren't at all in any way um, evidential based. You know, there's no evidence for, for what they, they claim about it. And what happens is they end up labeling people and boxing them off. And that, that person is like that. So I think it's quite interesting that you talked about these being trait and state based because there are some fundamental characteristics that we have as a person but they change from time to time. They change from situation to situation. When we're under stress, we might behave very differently from when we're really happy and relaxed and, and the, the way we approach things. So I think the, the PCDEs are quite interesting because they tend, to, they tend to apply across most athletes. And then it's just assessing where people are with each of those rather than saying that you're X or Y or Z and you sit in this quadrant over here and that's the way that you act and think all the time, which is what it tends to be. So I think that's quite interesting. And what I mean, what I would like to know is we have this PCDEQ um, and, and a list of the characteristics. So what, what would it look like practically um, working with an athlete or a team? How would you start to implement this? Is, is there certain ones you prefer over others or how would you start to implement this practically? So we assess according to the PCD. Can you just, just rattle off a couple of the PCDEs just so people get an example of what they are and then what it would look like practically to implement them? Uh, would you start with any one in particular or how would you, how would you go about the practical application? Well, I suppose I'd just take a, a little bit of a step back there in thinking about, well, the, for example, PC, what PCD, PCD is also highly contextual. So it's not like um, 
100 units of commitment is what's going to get you to the top in every field. Um, 100 units of quality of practice isn't going to get you to the top. It's, it's highly contextually defined. But across every domain of performance that's been investigated so far, there appears to be re really robust factors. Now, um, and importantly as well, they have subtly been updated. So, for example, self-awareness has become role clarity. Resilience has been taken off the list because that's considered more of an outcome than it is a process, which we might come on to later on. Yeah. Um, so in terms of how you use the PCDQ, well, you might, you might ask, you'd ask an athlete to look, have a, have a go at this, go through it. Once they've completed it, you uh, as a coach or as a, as a psych, you might do the same for that, uh, that athlete as well. You might then triangulate, compare, well, how does this work? How does this work? Is it, um, does this tally up with my view of the behavioral characteristics of this person? You can then, um, and you'll get a five-factor analysis that comes out of that. You can then choose, well, what intervention might we use to both encourage the strengths that are self-identified by this person and also then try and bring up the weaknesses of this person. So you end up with, uh, I suppose, an informed view on how you deploy an intervention with an individual. Now, there's other ways of doing it. You could do it on a team-based level as well. So you might get a view of a whole group of people, where they're at, and then what you might choose to deploy on a team-based level. I would also highlight that I think it's important that the conduct of that is done by a trained professional. So we're not necessarily just talking about you need to, if you're going to be able to do that, that, uh, that formulation, it's important that you know what you're talking about. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that a coach can't um, to make, take a view of where somebody is at psychologically and then be responsible for the development of the psych side. So on a, um, <clears throat> on a, uh, a less um, formulaic structure. One one of the things that I did with um, one of the the teams that I work with was I I was struggling a little with a bit with behaviour with the team that I was working with, and I was looking at the PCDs and one of the ones that stood out to me was commitments. So I was like, right, one of the things would be good for us just just to talk about at a base level is commitment, right? And uh, I, I spoke to Dave Collins, had a quick chat with him, and he was sort of talking about it and the way that I did it. So I'll tell you what I did and it'd be interesting to see what your thoughts are on it is that I've just sort of said to the, to the, to the athletes in that team is right. I want to work on commitment. I'm interested in commitment, but what does it mean to us as a group? Like not individually, but us as a group, what sorts of things would you, would you highlight as commitment? And uh, we came up with a, a couple of bits and pieces and we sort of narrowed it down to three things to try and keep it sort of short and sweet. And, um, and one of the things that I had to do as the coach was like, well, some of these are unrealistic. So it's like come to every session well, you're not going to be able to necessarily do that. So we, we, we ended up on uh, come to as many sessions as you possibly can would be an element of commitment. And we sort of reinforced that throughout the season. So I didn't necessarily do the PCDEQ. I just like thought, this is something I'm struggling with. I used the framework, same as my wine tasting. I was like, okay, on a, on a big level, the commitment is, uh, is my green fruit. And then like you go down into the what kind of green fruit is, what sort of behaviours do we as a group think that that, make, that makes up so that it came in their own language from their own observations of being in that environment 
And then and we had that as a thing that we held each other to. And we, we had various different ways we were playing around to try and score each other on whether they were, they were being committed within the, within the, um, within the, the coaching sessions that we did. So I'm just interested in what your opinion is on, on that. Is that, is that a reasonable way to go about it? Or again, this is because I'm thinking, well, I'm talking to Jamie, what's he going to say? Oh yeah, but you're missing this huge piece here. So I'm interested, like that was what I did. How, how would that, how would that fit with what your thoughts are around PCDs? Well, I think you've taken by the sounds of it and clearly, um, I mean, we might come on to this later on is like the idea of how, um, how you think critically about your coaching and so on. But, uh, you've talked uh, there by the sounds of it about the first step that Dave and Anya might uh, have, have talked about, which is we're going to clearly identify in this context, what being highly committed looks like. It's a positive behavior based thing. So it's not a lack of something. It is right. We're going to be, we're going to be here and on time as much as, as much as we possibly can. Now, the next step might then be is deciding, well, you as a coach, what behaviours do you adopt that promote and reinforce this? And as you're within your coaching system, how does that promote and reinforce the behaviour that you're looking for? So, I mean, something as simple as, did you uh, recognise and reward those athletes that were there as much as they could on time, perhaps it, who find it difficult to get there? And being through, you've got the classic example of the of the boy or girl that has to take a couple of buses to get to training and might arrive that little bit late. But it uh, is that then recognised as part of the coaching system, or is it it's right? It's on the wall. We've agreed this, and then we'll move on. And maybe at the start of next year, we'll decide that we're not committed enough again, and we'll go back to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it was it was quite a challenge trying to reward it. And um, one of the things we did was try and like say, right, who's the most committed according to our criteria? But there was a lot of gaming and voting and uh, it got a bit messy. But um, the other thing that I noticed about the PCDs is that um, obviously I've only ever seen them in the research around sport, but it did strike me that looking at them, they're whole life skills. So whether or not someone actually does make it to the top of a sporting pathway, if they were equipped with tools to be able to assess self-reflection, focus and distraction control. They're all things that I think that are, are, are things that would help anyone in anything that they do. And I say this as someone who's just changed what I do quite radic radically. And I sort of like looking at a lot of things that, that I now use, that I, I'm trying to apply some of them to myself, is like, you know, how can I use these to improve what I do and how I do it? And I think they're very useful and it's a very good framework for that. So. Have you, is there any thought around PCDs being used more widely, like, for example, in schools or like wider settings? Well, they already have been operationalised in lots of different settings. So a lot of the research has been done in dance, for example. Um, we've, uh, we've deployed them in schools as well uh, with significant success. And I think that, I mean, there's, there's another body of research that Graham Williams and Anya McNamara have been, uh, have been doing of late, and uh, Graham released a paper, I think probably midpoint last year, when looking at the skills that those who were deselected from talent pathways acquired and the value that they got out of it on a psychological level, and were then able to transfer into other sports, uh, the, the sport that they were playing, 
or into their career as well. I think that the bit that might be pointed to as the important bit, if they're going to be able to transfer, is making it explicit, as in, um, we are working at this, this will help you here, and therefore that enables somebody to be able to transfer it to another domain rather than it just being a, um, I run a, a football session where sessions are really intense. If you're going to be able to survive in it, then you're going to have to be committed because the intensity is so high. That would be more of a, a purely implicit-based approach. It's the explicit stuff that sits around it. That idea of coach behaviour, coach system, how they combine, that is what's likely to support somebody to be able to transfer it. Yeah, I think that's very important because when I saw the framework of the piece of these, it sort of made sense and then you can break them down into the subsets and, and how you can actually develop the skills around, how you can develop the, the mental tools to be able to apply them. And so the other thing that I, I'm interested to ask is um, in terms of the practical implementation, one of the immediate things that I thought of, and this is a massive mistake I've made in my coaching, is trying to do way too much over too short a period of time. So I worked with a rugby team and we were trying to work on acceleration, deceleration um, and agility within every session over three months, expecting them to be much better at it. And one of the things I do now is, right, let's pick one thing, do it really well, hammer it every time until we start to get, and probably over six months, maybe over a year, depending on how old their kids or if they're more senior athletes. And so with the PCDs, one of the things I decided was like, right, we're just going to pick one and we're going to work on it for a whole, I think it was probably uh, in the end eight weeks and just reinforce that one every time. How do you see the inter interplay of them? You know, when people go and look at the framework, they'll see that certain ones will fit together or they'll be working with an athlete where it will be obvious that two or three of them need to be worked on at the same time and can be um, complementary. Um, are there any thoughts on the sort of time scales or the interaction of the PCDs that you think practically are important? Uh, I don't want to be cliche, but I think the answer depends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, the, I'd say that it's, uh, to me, it would be less about uh, focusing on one PCD at a time yeah. and more about perhaps uh, one approach or one new uh, way of operating on a system-based level. So in the example that you gave of your commitment-based behavior, behavior and uh, psycho-behavioral characteristics take a, a fair bit of time to change. So uh, just as if you're working on a physical uh, capability, you're not going to make somebody, um, uh, you're not going to take a second off somebody's 40 meter in a few weeks. And much the same principle However, given how interrelated all these characteristics are, I think you'd be limiting yourself if you chose to do one at a time. Yeah. Now, um, that means that you're, I suppose you'd be very selective with the, in the, uh, the method that you used. So what's going to get you the biggest bang for your buck? Uh, for example, goal setting is a really useful tool. And you can use goal setting to improve commitment, imagery, quality of practice, focus. Now, and then all of those other things will reinforce each other because if I'm more focused, if I can, if I can deploy effective focus and distraction control, I can improve the quality of my practice. By the same token, if I can um, 
improve my focus, distraction control, quality of practice. I will then be, uh, be able to be rewarded for the commitments that I've deployed. And therefore, it's likely to reinforce everything. So rather than seeing them as these distinct things, it's worth thinking about, well, where uh, broadly, where are our strengths? Where are our weaknesses? Particularly working in a group setting and then deploying an intervention on that basis. But importantly, and I think this is probably something that's perhaps neglected in coaching as a whole, is that we tend to see things session by session. <clears throat> and I can remember many years ago, probably when I, when I started out as a coach, that almost the start of your, your level one coaching practice is, well, um, why would you plan a session based on when, what went badly at the weekend? You need to be taking a longer term view. I think that's something that teachers are very well aware of and something that coaches perhaps aren't. So taking a really long-term view of when might I do this, when might I do this, the idea of nested planning, how you, uh, how you move through an overall plan and adjust it as you go along the way. Could you just explain about nested planning in a little bit more depth? I think that sounds quite interesting. Yeah, sorry. So you'd have your long-term goals or big-picture goals now, depending on who you're working with, that might be over the course of years. That might be an Olympic cycle where we want this person to medal at the next Games. Um, they might be referred to as macro. That's the big picture. That's what, that's your that's where you're working towards. You might then have your miso, which is the next level down. And um, I suppose the language of macro, miso, micro, will be very familiar to S&C coaches, but um, macro, big, miso, medium-sized, big, and micro, not very big. Yeah. So you've got your um, your MISO goals, which are going to be, uh, could be framed over a period of months and a period of weeks where, right, for this block of time, this is what our focus is going to be. This is what we're aiming to, to do. And then you take that down to the micro level where you might plan day by day, session by session. Now, the uh, the idea of um, of Andy Abraham, Dave Collins, was this idea of nested thinking and nested decision-making where you uh, ideally uh, constructively align your actions today with the long term. That's, um, that's something that I've been trying to work towards is, is creating a, a long-term plan and making sure that everything that I'm doing within a session is sort of working towards that, but also being slightly adaptable um, because obviously you've got to coach what's going on in front of you. But I, I think you're right. There is quite a lot of knee jerkies. Our, our um, kick defence was absolutely horrendous on the weekend. And that's, that's all that happens that, that Tuesday session when <laughs> in reality, you're forgetting about all the other things you've been working on long-term and, and you can start to throw away a lot of, a lot of the good, good work you've done. So so just to sort of sum up the, the PCDEs then, where, uh, is there, uh, are there any resources? Uh, obviously, there's, we'll try and get some links to the original research um, into the show notes, but are there any other resources you think might be particularly helpful to coaches? I know there was a book chapter uh, in a, psychological, a psychology hand, um, textbook that I saw that was very useful when I was researching them. Uh, is it, well, uh, I would, my, my starting point would be that Dave and Anya wrote a book called Talent Development and Practitioner's Guide, not that long ago. Very, very readable, excellent piece of work. The other thing I'd say is that I, um, I don't, so the, this body of work is all freely available. Yeah. Um, if you type it in, you'll be able to find it. It's not, and I suppose that uh, both myself uh, and 
colleagues that I'm referring to would probably see that um, would make a real effort to ensure that it's not full of jargon. It's pretty readable stuff. And yes, there's probably there's a level of jargon, and you've rightly pulled me up on a few of them. The idea that, but there are some concepts that you're going to need to get your head around. But if you're looking for something really simple, then you're going to get pretty lost in co- in coaching. Full stop. So I take the time just to go and look at the original stuff, consider what it means, and work from there. And look. And I'd also say that in my experience, that and it's uh, that uh, although it's not my area, it's not my body of work. That both Dave and Anya are very very open to chatting to people about it, asking questions, and so on. As I think you found out. Yeah, yeah, I spoke, to, uh, I just sent Dave a message and said, like, I, I really want to speak to someone who's has actually been heavily involved in this research and he spent about 20 minutes talking to me on the phone. It was really helpful. So um, I, I think we, we I, I want to get into a little bit more about yourself now with coaching, but um, I love a tangent. And uh, so I'm going to just immediately jump off on a tangent before we even get into that because this is something I'm struggling with a little bit at the moment. Like, I, I sort of love language. It's a weird thing. I'm quite interested in language and my dad used to be a policeman and he's always hit my, he's the grammar police, like on a level you wouldn't believe because his point of view was when he was a policeman and they actually used to do prosecutions. If a comma was in the wrong place or used the wrong word, someone might get convicted or might not get convicted. It could be a difference between a very important, you know, uh, outcome. And so I've always been like that. And there's a really interesting conflict in my mind at the minute is that, I see huge amounts of jargon in coaching, but some of it really serves a purpose. And your that word specifically describes that one concept that you're talking about. But then you go and stand in front of a group of twelve year olds. You can't really use that. Well, I, I personally try not to use those those sorts of words. I, I see a lot of conversation and debate on Twitter, probably more at an academic level. But I find it it's a weird one at the minute where um, they're quite specific academic concepts that people are trying to relate to kids and then they're sort of like saying in a session well what does that afford you and i heard a coach say that to him. i said well, what does that afford you he said what do you mean afford what what what's what's the price of it what and they, the kid just didn't know where he's like right what is that what, what could you have done there would have been a much easier way to to go and how do you so you operate very firmly in both worlds so you're doing academic research but you are on the grass you are coaching so uh you're coaching at loughborough is that correct yeah, 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 and you've coached at uh, Leicester Tigers Academy, so you're you're working with um, a lot of youth and people that aren't necessarily working in uh, acad- academia. So how how do you find that? You know, trying to translate academic, you must have a lot of jargon floating around in your head, but you actually go out and talk to people day to day. How have you? Is that something you've considered? Um, it's something I definitely consider, and as look as you can, as you've rightly pulled me up on here a couple of times, that I can drift into using little bits of jargon, but I'll only really use them if I think they're important and worthy concepts. Um, and look, I think it's it's different on different levels. So if I'm coaching a player, well, look, first I'd start off with the first first rule of coaching and teaching is meeting the person where they are now. Now, that means that if and I haven't coached a 12-year-old for a very, very long time, but I'm probably not going to be talking about, um, say, 
uh, nested planning. And this is my nested plan for you. And uh, at the macro level, this is where you're going to be in six years' time. And that's just about meeting somebody where they are now. I think there is a level of jargon that every coach needs to be able to understand if they're going to engage with the, the, the concepts that we're talking about. And I think that I see, and this is, this is both ends. One is that I think in academia, there is a, a level of jargonizing for the sake of it. Yeah. And then at the other end, I think that in no other profession would it be okay for people not to have a basic level of understanding of the concepts and the tools that are going to help them do their job really well. So there's, there's a balance there, but to my mind, coaches have to make more of an effort to understand and learn the concepts because it's more than just a language game as well. It's, um, it's a bit of a point of frustration for me when I hear a coach say, well, yeah, I know that it's just different language than I'd use because very often they are, they're talking about a very distinct concept has very different distinct meanings and has a real uh, practical difference for them and at the other end it's the responsibility of academics to make sure that their work isn't jargony for the for no reason and this is probably where and this is the reason why i enjoy where i am now in that i don't think there's enough uh people who who straddle both sides of this where um, it's not academia for the sake of it. And the, I think that um, my fundamental drive is to help improve coaching practice rather than um, just write papers for the sake of it. I want to make a real difference to coaches and coaching. Yeah, and I think the reason I'm really interested in you because you def- that is your job, isn't it? So you, in, in, in your role at the EIS, and maybe you can just talk a little bit about that, is I would have thought you're... It's a funny one because I, th- I think this will change as uh, we're seeing quite, a, certainly I see that a lot of coaches going through um, the coach education with Andy Abraham and all these people, but they're coming through having a really good understanding of uh, epistemologies and you know, quite, quite long words essentially, but the knowledge of knowledge and the knowledge of learning and pedagogy and all these things, I think they're really important concepts. But at the moment, there are quite a few coaches out there who are where they are because of their coaching career, you know, demonstrated and very good outcomes in developing winning athletes, winning teams, that kind of thing. But they might not necessarily have the underpinning education that a lot of the coaches that will be coming, that are coming through now that have been to school, been to university. That's just like a, what kids do these days. You know, if you go back even like 20 years, it was quite a rare thing to go to university back then. So, how, how, what sort of practical um, information or how, how do you sort of deal with uh, coaches on one side who might not be that academic, but then uh, the support system, which is very academic. So, for example, you've got a sport coach and they're dealing with SNCs who are PhDs and uh, that kind of thing. Is that your role to sort of mediate and try and bring both together so they're using a common language? Um. Uh, I suppose in part, yes. Um, I mean, look, I, 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 so I, I'm thinking about a, a specific coach that I'm working with now that I've got the great pleasure of working with, who is uh, an outstanding coach, um, worked across multiple Olympic cycles um, and has been involved in multiple, multiple medal-winning performances. Now, if I was going to talk about epistemology, ontology, or even some of the concepts that we've talked about here, 
that he wouldn't be able to declaratively, that is, have the real clear knowledge of exactly what we're talking about, these fundamental concepts. But yet in his coaching practice, he's got a very, very clear idea. He's got a very clear philosophy and he has an outstanding way of, of, a, of, of being as a coach without necessarily having the declarative knowledge of the different concepts that we're talking about. But yet he will deploy them. Mm. Now, there is a bit of a danger in that um, he's one of very, very few people who have um, got to his level of coaching at the level of success that he's had in the world. Now, we can always draw on examples of people who have got to the very top without doing something, but then how many people have not gotten there? Um, because he's, he's got an enormous number of hours of coaching behind him, of which he's ref- constantly tweaking, constantly reflecting, and has been, been able to, re- uh, to get himself to a, a standard of coaching that is genuinely world-class that doesn't necessarily mean that the next lot of coaches are going to do the same thing and therefore I think it's a real responsibility of coaches uh, sorry of coach developers to help equip uh, coaches with knowledge of pedagogy therefore they need to have this declarative knowledge they need to understand why what works works and why not as well Um, I think I've done what you said you were doing earlier on, which is I've just started talking and I've completely forgotten the question. That's good. But that's good. The, um, and that's my responsibility as both uh, academic, I suppose, and coach developer. I work with people to help uh, either develop uh, the, their areas of knowledge in what they need or their ways of working. Now, I'm absolutely not going to be strolling into this coach and saying, well, hang on, hang on, sorry, you didn't know this concept. So let, me just, uh, let me just educate you about that. Because he, he doesn't necessarily need it. I might, he, may, he may well want to learn about it, and he has wanted to learn about some of the concepts we're talking about. But at the same time, if he and he'll say this himself, is that if he went back in time, he would like to have had this foundational declarative knowledge from which to work from rather than having to learn by so much trial and error. Yeah. I, uh, I just um, want to probably change tack just slightly because um, I think there's a, there's a thread to come back to there and it was probably around that thing, I think that sort of leads on to professional judgment and decision making and, and how good coaches do what they do and, and around education. And I think I'd like to get there via your own personal story. So one of the things I'm interested in is sometimes I, I like to look, think back to when I first started coaching and things I did. And sometimes, obviously, sometimes you sit there, it just, you, you sparked a memory for me when you said about doing your early stages of rugby coaching. And uh, you were saying about one of the things we've forgotten is about long-term planning. It sort of sparked a memory in me because I, I do cringe at a lot of the things I did when I first started coaching. But also there was a lot of coaching courses that I did that are f- like fundamental to what I do now. Like the RFU level one, things about positioning, um, things about how you talk to people, like some real basics of coaching that like, I, I do all the time now. And I, I talk to some coaches um, and I don't think they talk about that anymore. I think they've sort of shifted off of that. And it was 
it was really good things that they did. And I think they've sort of forgotten some of the good stuff they did. But I just want to ask you, looking back now from, from a person who's in a position with lots of tools at their disposal, lots of research, what do you think when you look back on your start to coaching, you know, were there things that you think you look back on and go, you know, back in the day, because it's very often true. I think this point doesn't get made enough. We were doing some really good things. You know, like, there's a lot of times I speak to some coaches like, oh yeah, well back in the seventies, this was happening and that was happening. You think, oh, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And equally there are things you sort of cringe and you think, but I learned a big, big lesson from that. So, so what do you think looking back on when you first started coaching through the lens of your position now with all the tools and all the knowledge at your disposal, what, what sort of things do you think about? I think there's a couple of interesting bits in there. One is that there's always that reflection on a golden age when everything was better. Um, and look, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know what uh, level ones, level twos look like um, at the moment. And I can remember what my own um, thought, what my own experience of that stage of my, uh, my coaching was like, um, even though, I mean, we're talking nearly 20 years ago now. Um, and I can, uh, I think it's interesting because my memories go beyond just a coaching course, uh, that it strays more into the types of people that I was working with at the time. Um, so that would be me as a, uh, as a, as a, I suppose, a, a young coach working in different schools and coaching school, uh, schoolboy rugby players and predominantly delivering coaching in the way that I was coached, which I can look back on. I can uh, I can remember running some, doing some silly things like uh, like doing press ups for dropping balls and uh, lots of of a quite high, uh, high intensity unopposed catch and pass drills, which if deployed in the right manner. I've got no problem with, but I wasn't deploying them with any sense of why I was deploying them. I was just doing it. That element of, of why was fundamentally missing from my practice. I didn't have a sense of, well, what's the long term here? What am I trying to get at? You mentioned the idea of professional judgment, decision-making, and I fundamentally think that that underpins high quality coaching practice. And if you look at the expertise literature more broadly, it probably underpins a variety of different professions. Um, now, what that says is that the idea of why you are doing something is fundamental. You've got to have that declarative knowledge that I mentioned earlier on that helps you tweak, change what you're doing because you understand what the purpose of it is rather than the procedural knowledge, which is I know how to do something. Difference between a, a cook who follows the recipe and a chef who uh, goes out, buys the food, designs the recipe, tweaks it, plays around with it because they understand why they're doing what they do. Um, so fundamentally, I would have been there as a cook who was following a, a recipe that I'd come up with from somewhere. Uh, I had um, some good support. I had some, some very, very good support as a young teacher. So moving on, uh, got my first teaching job at the school in Birmingham, had some really really good support around me there with um uh, with a, with a couple of re real mentors of mine um and that began to shape and change how i thought about teaching how i thought about coaching and really got me thinking about why i was doing what i was doing and i, I don't just mean at the level uh, at the level of um 
right play around with this say game drill whatever you want to call it this type of practice it began getting me to think about well, why do I because I'd always got this idea that I love what I do that I'd, I'd go and coach if uh, if nobody paid me to do it and I'd go and do it somewhere because I enjoy it so much um, and it really helped me reflect on well why am I doing what I'm doing what is it about this what is it about the watching somebody improve or grow as a person that really gets me excited and um, and makes me feel like this is my uh, I suppose my purpose in life um and then uh i moved moved on to an, another school school called denson college which uh, where i was running the rugby program and doing some uh, doing some coaching at leicester as well and uh, that gave me the perspective of running a whole program getting think thinking about really long term how do you deploy a coaching system as a whole um and again changing my coaching practice and thinking about this is something we, that um uh, particularly prevalent in talent development is the idea of orchestration of how do you coach with and through other people because there's so many people that impact on development of an individual and uh, then uh, on to my time at Leicester where uh, really really enjoyable period of time quite um, formative in lots of ways for me as a coach really exposed me to some very good people um, and uh, and on to where I am now where I see my role more as uh, so part. I mean, very, very part time at Loughborough, where I'm still helping young players develop themselves as 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 players and as people. But predominantly, my role is developing coaches, and I get the same buzz and enjoyment out of that as anything else. Yes, yeah, it's, it's developing people, isn't it? So, what um, you said there that you uh, were working in a school and you got very good support. What sort of things did that look like to you? What, 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 is good support, what was good support in that context for you at that time? What sort of things were those people helping you with? I mean, at the very basic level, I had a good group of senior teachers who were helping me think about what I was doing and why I was doing it. So if I'm running a year eight badminton lesson and I get them lined up one at a time to, uh, to uh, play a shot, then I've got a senior teacher me going, "What are you? Why are you doing that?" Oh, because the tech, because I really want to make sure I'm, I'm clearly observing everything they do. And you want to get these other twenty nine uh, children stood there doing what? Okay, yeah, good point. Um, and have, just having people who are interested in my developments, and also pushing me, pushing me to get better. Um, me then taking pride in what I did, uh, doing an enormous volume of, of, of work. I mean, teaching four or five hours a day um, and, and taking pride in every single one of those lessons was a really formative thing for me. And I think uh, this is something else I've been thinking about as well, is that I think most, I'd sort of, thinking about this in context of motor learning we we learn to move by copying other people so as a kid you'll see other people walking around and you you want to imitate so a baby you can't talk to a baby properly when they learn to walk so you can't give them technical instruction about how to place their foot or whatever and i was sort of thinking about about coaching because um, i was talking to a friend and there was a very dominant character when we were coming through as young coaches 
and we still joke about people who act like him now. <laughs> so they never sort of grew out of it. But I think it's quite a common thing is that you model a coach when you're coming through and you're young and impressionable. And I, I actually think that's a really valuable thing is because a lot of people say they, I coached the way I was coached. And I think that's a valuable stage in your development, but you need to move past that and you need to become your own person. I think a lot of people get stuck at that stage. Do you think there's anything that would help people to think about that breaking through that, that copying stage? Because I think some people never quite make it past that to develop into their own. Do you think there's factors that would, would help people to do that themselves? Well, I think ideally that's where uh, education development becomes a really important factor because Yes, I, I do think there is some value. I think there is important value in perhaps copying. But at the same time, uh, the level of support I had wasn't a, you need to do it like this. It was more, why are you doing this? What's the reason you've chosen to do this? And it was more about the type of support and the type of mentorship that I was receiving, which at times would have been more, okay, well, I don't think this is really good enough and this is why. At other times, this have been, it would have been, look, I why have you chosen to do that? Um, so you've got, I think the type of mentorship is important. And I think that's probably where an element of coach development practice that I would like to see a little bit more prevalent. Um, and the flip side of that is that when you're in a formal learning and development setting as a coach, which is clearly important, clearly has its place that, you ideally should be equipping somebody to be able to go out into the world and learn rather than it be. And this is what I hear a lot is that, right, this should be included in coach education. And the list of things that should be included in coach education is so long that I don't, if, I, if I'd started 20 years ago, I think I'd still be on that course. But that's the point is that we need to be, I suppose, I, have a, I think I have a clear idea of what I think the fundamentals of coaching practice are, the fundamental bodies of knowledge that support somebody to uh, develop as a coach and develop their practice, develop the critical thinking that's necessary to engage with everything that we're talking about now, because we're talking about something that's really complex. So all of those things, I think, and that's where how you set somebody up and the knowledge that they engage with is a really important factor in their development. A lot of coaches, so I can't remember the figure because they did some research, but I think, I think it was maybe up to 70% of coaches in the UK are unpaid volunteers, you know, and they're generally working with the most important group you could possibly work with, which is young children where they're, you know, totally open, they're totally open minds and, a lot of the things you're setting up for at that age will be the habits and skills that they sort of take through into their life. And how have you, have you got any thoughts? Maybe this is too big a question, but have you got any thoughts on how we can take this huge complexity of coaching, the huge depth, uh, broad breadth and depth of knowledge of pedagogy and practice design and all those things and, help those people to engage with it because it can be quite intimidating. There can be a lot of complicated terms and words. Um, have you got any thoughts around how we get those people to engage with that kind of stuff or would there be things that you think that need to, or, or could happen that would mean that we get more experienced coaches working at the younger ages? I might, I might flip it around a little bit and, um, and say, can you imagine a situation where, 
uh, 70% of uh, doctors and nurses working in the NHS were unqualified and what we really want, had to do was put them in a situation where uh, we'd really like them to engage with uh, different bodies of knowledge and support to develop their practice because we think it's pretty important they know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I think this, this comes down to a, it's a societal value that, that's placed on coaching and if it's activity supervision, as in, look, Sunday morning, uh, go run around, have play, because just, you know, just turn up and run around. Well, that to me is a different thing to coaching. Uh, I would like to see a far greater value that's placed on coaches and coaching practice. I don't think there's enough value placed on it. I'm also very conscious that I don't think that we want to be watering down progress as a profession because of the current situation where uh, lots of lots of very hard-working people who volunteer their time for the good of lots of young people um i don't uh, I, I don't think that'd be an acceptable situation in teaching yeah or any of the other professions that i've i've, I've fired off and clearly being a surgeon is a is a more important role than being a coach but it has a profound impact on people's lives. So I think we should be trying to improve that situation rather than working around it. And so that would be my next thing for you to, to ask you is again, I'm going to tell you a quick story. Hopefully it'll be quick. <laughs> Not known for telling quick stories, but I did my level two, probably I'd say it was 2007. Right. And I played terrible. I was a terrible rugby player. I was played in the backs. I never really thought about the game in any depth or anything like that. But, I knew, same as you, I knew that I wanted to coach. I really, I did my level one and I, I wanted to work particularly in fitness at that time. And I was just sort of trying to work my way up. And so I did, uh, did my level two. And it, my coaching task was developing the peel at the back of a lineup. Now, I'd only ever played in the back, so I never thought about the game. To be honest, I don't really think too deeply about the game now, in, 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 in all honesty. So like, I was sitting there going, what is this? You might as well ask me to uh, perform, perform a lobotomy on someone because I just didn't have a clue about what to do. And I was really frustrated at the time because there was nowhere I could go to find information about the peel in a lineup. Now I would have probably 25 YouTube videos, four webinars. There would be a huge array of PDFs and there'd probably be forums I could go onto and read about. It'd be a huge information. But sort of th thinking about that now, what happened was, I was like, I can't find anything. There's nothing on the internet about this. I spoke to a few people about it and they weren't much help because they were telling me what they would do at their club they were older coaches and it was you stand him here him here he passes to him and he runs it and the, the coaching course was all about game sense and i spoke to the coach developer he's like mate if you do that you'll fail so i had to sit down and, and my reflection now is what i actually did was i split them into two teams and i made them play a game against each other where you have 10 goes to develop a peel off the back of a lineup, and we'll see who scores most tries so they had 10 goes each amongst the two teams, 10 attacks, 10 defence. And then we sort of broke that. Okay, what went well? What didn't go well? We did sort of... And I think actually now looking back on that from a session design perspective is whole part whole. It was game-like because it, I literally played a game. Then we broke down some of the parts. Uh, we had a discussion about what worked, what didn't work. And then we went back in and played the game again at the end, the whole sort of thing. So I was forced to do that because of the dearth of information. But these days... 
I probably would have had my head filled with loads of other information. So getting to the point eventually is there's a huge amount of information and not, access to knowledge is no longer a problem. It's sifting the knowledge. So what sorts of things can coaches do to start to sift through the knowledge to find good quality in, in what they're doing? Because particularly now with what's happened over lockdown, there's never been more knowledge. I mean, we're drowning in knowledge, it, but how do you, and, and does that come into maybe the professional judgment decision-making will come to that at the end, but how do, I've been talking way too long. How do coaches sift information? Oh, I think your specific situation on a number of levels. I think that the question why and the knowledge of why becomes so important. So when you're chatting to other coaches about line-out peels, well, could they explain why they would do that? Why they would have uh, Jill running that line, Bob running this line, whatever? And if they can't explain why, well, they haven't got the foundation or knowledge that they need for, to be able to support you to develop that particular area of your technical, tactical knowledge. And the next level of why is uh, why were you learning about, why were you having to demonstrate that you could run a game sense session? Hmm. What is it about this specific coaching method? Because if you don't know why, then you can't adapt it, use it in your own coaching practice. So, for example, principle of specificity. Uh, we know that play, using game-based practice methods um, is important for learning and transfer into the full game because you need to make your, your, your practice as specific as possible. What, and in, in specifically in game sense and teaching games for understanding, why is it that you're going to get them to actively reflect on uh, what they're doing? What's the benefit of that versus you telling them? And that's, the, that's where the rubber really meets the road in coaching because if you're doing that in, in real life, there's a clear um, offset of your time, offset of their cognitive load as well. What do you want them reflecting on? Mm. What do you want each player to be reflecting on? Because it might make absolutely no difference whatsoever to player one to be thinking about the tactical nuances of this particular lineup heel when she might be better off focusing on the quality of her lift, quality of the landing, um, how she's uh, how she's how she's setting up how she's setting up the peel and so on. And that's where the why is so important. And then you take that up to the level of uh, the webinar craze that we've just been through and I think that very often we've found ourselves in situations where we're on a webinar hearing how somebody how it should be done yeah yeah or what's the nugget of information that I can take from this and that completely undermines the a model that we know to be effective of in expertise which is why why is this? Why why are people searching for this little nugget that they can copy and paste and add to their practice if they don't know why? And that's the fundamental question that I think that we all need to be asking more often. Yeah, I definitely, I would definitely agree with that. And I think probably is because most people will never get above the level of enthusiastic amateur as a coach. So they're probably coaching two, possibly three times a week with their kids' team. And so it's one of many things they do. They're working a job. They're trying to put stuff together and they need something they can, oh yeah, I can just grab that 
stick it into the session. The kids can do that and uh, they, they'll play. And I think I'm slightly concerned with certain things becoming trendy. So it's like there's a trend to do this now. It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, my, the other problem I, I think I see quite a lot is where it's what people think they're doing versus what they're actually doing. So um, I was standing with someone, a coach once, and he was telling me in great detail about how everything's game-based now. Was, yeah, it's all game-based. They just have to learn it all. And then he just stopped and was like, no, I told you, you need to hold this. And he was like literally moving around on a pitch. I was like, yeah, but I thought it was all games. Was, yeah, 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 they're playing a the game. And <laughs> they were playing a game, but he was telling them exactly what to do because he didn't understand the why about implicit knowledge or about um, players problem solving themselves, about it being long-term learning, that kind of thing. And um, I suppose that sort of le- leads on to the next thing is that uh, you spoke um, quite a lot before about pod- pedagogy. So the theory of learning. And I don't see a lot of that in coach education. I see a lot of um, not so. I see a lot of methods. So I see a lot of methods, not principles. So we talk about principles overarching and and being the foundation and, and methods changing according to this. The, it, the, the methods are the, are the it depends, but the, the principles always stay the same. And so I've no, I don't see much pedagogy in coaching education. And do you think, is there a reason for that? Or is there a way that we could get more of that kind of thing in? I, I don't know if there's a specific reason for it, but I fundamentally believe that it's essential for coaching practice to develop. Even in the example you've just given of um, somebody stopping a session saying, well, it's all games based. I'm using game sense. And well, why is the why is that coach deciding that he's going to limit uh, himself? I'm assuming it's a him, by the way. By the way, you told was, the story. It was, yeah, yeah, it was. yeah, yeah. Um, that if, for example, why is it? Why is it? Why would that coach decide that they're going to try and use implicit learning? What's the reason for that? And. In, in, to, in for him to make a decision about whether it was an appropriate moment to go look stop look you stand here you stand here you stand here that's uh, and deploying an instructional style well that's a, a pedagogical decision that underpins his practice now in certain in, in well in in lots of situations that's perfectly appropriate but if we are telling, if we're t- telling coaches, well, this is the way you should do it. It should be games based. It should be implicit. Um, we need to be manipulating constraints, and all this stuff becomes a. This is how you should coach, rather than this is why this method is appropriate for this particular moment, for uh, for this particular reason. So, if you haven't got that pedagogical knowledge and understanding, how do you shape the learning environment for the athlete player? So, so would you like to see theme-based coach education? So at the moment we have theme-based stuff where they'll do uh, forward play, attacking back play, that kind of thing. W- would you think it might be useful for them to do a, ve- a, a series of coach education about this is game sense and why we use it and how we use it. This is direct instruction. This is why we use it, how we use it. And sort of a, a range of tools of, of coaching. Would that be something you think would be useful? Yes, I think so. If uh, if I understand you right, I'd say yes. It's really important for coaches to see a, a full repertoire of a coaching toolbox, 
and understand why they might use it. And look, that 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 work has been around for a long time. There's there's been lots of work that's looked at coaching toolbox. This is what it depends on. And I don't necessarily see that in the look again. I, I don't I don't I don't I haven't seen level one level two no. uh, coaching course since I did one. Yeah. And and this comes back down to well, what are our expectations of what coaching practice is, and how do we help? Uh, move the profession onwards and this to me I think is the key to how you move the profession on in supporting coaches better understand how they shape the learning and development of young athletes. So um, did you have formal teacher training when when before you were working in the schools and is that where you first came across these much more so than saying coaching? See, I'd love to say yes, but for the majority of my time as a uh, doing teacher training, I ignored it. I didn't see the value in it. I, I did enough to get by, and I thought, well, I'm getting all I'm getting all I need from the practical knowledge I, I'm getting here. Now, clearly, there's a whole there's a mine of resource that I could have used there, but I chose not to. I chose to reject it. So, you know, what are the first steps for a coach? Well, if you look at how many years that I've been thinking about coaching, teaching, learning. It's it's an awful lot. Yeah. And my introduction was it? Oh, this is a load of nonsense. That I, as a uh, as a twenty one year old on a on a graduate uh, teacher program, I know better. Um, and look, maybe maybe that's the arrogance of youth, and maybe it's because I I believe so strongly in the mentors that I had around me that it led me to uh, just reject that body of knowledge at the same time though. Um, and I was chatting to somebody uh, in New Zealand the other day and they were saying that, well, they were uh, reflecting on the increasing numbers of coaches that they see who haven't been through the teaching profession and how that's impacting on quality of coaches. And I think that the cultural practices within teaching are far more, uh, they're far more pedagogical than necessarily they are in coaching. And as a result, there's lots of implicit stuff that I've picked up there. And if I was going to have my time again, clearly I'd be engaging a lot more in the, uh, in the, uh, in the academic stuff than I did at the time. Um, and I think that, and this is where, I mean, teacher training has, there's a lot of pluses for it in that what I got implicitly out of that experience rather than explicitly set me up okay for the next few years. But the difference with teacher training is that it stops after one year and like you're good to go. Um, but there's a barrier to entry. There's a, there's a, a relatively rigorous starting point and that's not the case for coaches. I find it very bizarre because um, like I, Sometimes I, I, I work with um, coaches, particularly coaches that have gone through a load of stuff about session design or implicit learning and that kind of thing. And they tend to have a really good uh, understanding of that sometimes better than some of the maybe more junior teachers that are coming through, like you say. Um, because if you go back in the day, so many of the great coaches were teachers, you know, like um, Ian McGeekin and um, uh, Graham Henry and all the, all of the, these teachers, uh, all these coach, great coaches that were teachers, but I almost feel it's like going the other way now where some of the teachers are coming away from the pedagogical stuff and some of the coaches are picking it up through the research, you know, and like learning about 
for the interest of so i've been reading about cognitive load about session design about implicit learning explicit learning and sometimes you can talk to teachers and they haven't got a clue about some of these things it's a bit it's a bit bizarre and it would be interesting to see because the thing i notice now is that you speak to some of the young coaches coming through on degrees and they're sort of blowing me away with their understanding of ontology and epistemology and all these kinds of things and their level of understanding of the coaching process as a whole and everything that fits into it at a really young age because a lot of people used to come to coaching a little bit older and I used to have the sort of feeling that it's because most of it is dealing with people you need to be a bit older because you need to know how to deal with people and the older you are the more people you dealt with the more you sort of understand that but um, I think I'm, I've changed my mind meeting quite a few young coaches that are coming out of university now that they're sort of leaving me standing in terms of their knowledge of pedagogy and understanding and that kind of thing. So another thing that I wanted to talk to you about was this thing of professional um, judgment and decision-making, because that would be something that develops over a period of time, sort of going back to what we were talking about before, where uh, you, you, you develop your understanding and you become your own coach. So in terms of professional judgment and decision-making, it's something that is often, in my experience, left to time. So you develop that over a period of time of coaching. Are there things, I have not looked at that research too much, there is research on it. Are there, are there things that coaches can do to, to develop that or are there things that you should be thinking of as a coach in terms of making a judgment call about what to use and when and what decisions, you know, is it, are there frameworks for that kind of thing? Yeah, so I mean, and look, I think you've actually just uh, set, set up the idea of PGDM really nicely, and that you might have a, a coach who's come out of an undergraduate course who's got good declarative knowledge, but perhaps hasn't developed the procedural stuff, as in how do I do this and how does it work in the real world? And then reflecting on your practice based on the declarative knowledge you've got. And I'm certainly not suggesting that it's, it's just about more and more knowledge because it, it absolutely isn't. Coaching is a social endeavor where uh, you work with another person um, based on all the perceptions that they have all the complexity that human beings bring but that knowledge and that declarative knowledge underpins the decisions that you might make and choose it in those moments what does a coach do um, i would look at uh, uh, i suppose i'm in danger of uh, saying we'll look at the original research again but i'd say that look it's not um, it's not really, I mean, it's not absolutely stacked with jargon. If you look at uh, a paper by Abraham and Collins, uh, 2011, can't remember the exact title of the paper, and that shows that I'm a, definitely an academic when I can cite, uh, cite research in the year it's in. But, um, it, and I'm sure you can stick it in the, in the notes, but that will be yeah. freely available online where coaches can go and have a look at, well, look at these areas of, of it depends and what does it depend on. Um, I'd also say that some some re, I mean, there's a really useful uh, new tool that, I, that um, uh, Dave Collins and a, a guy called Lowell Collins that have produced the idea of the Big Five uh, reflective tools that get people to reflect on uh, what have they done, why have they done it, what alternatives could they have chosen, and uh, the idea of how they might test or understand uh, whether they've chosen a good option and really building systematic reflection into their practice. And not just uh, the, the typical sort of stuff that I see, which is, and this underpins professional judgment and decision making is, and when people talk about reflection, there's, I mean, there's lots of different levels. Um, and I suppose if you've got a more sociological flavor, you might reflect on, well, 
on the underpinning power structures of the coaching environment and so on. Um, but it's definitely not what went well, what could have been, what could have been better. It's got to be more rigorous than that because you end up just really surface level and you don't influence and shape the practice. So going back to the idea of what's just happened, why is it, why have I chosen to do this? And then considering alternatives that you could have used. Now, look, if I was going to relate that to my own practice, we've obviously with COVID regulations and coaching Loughborough, <coughs> this means that uh, I'm coaching line out. It's got to be unopposed. You've got 15 minutes at a time to do it. And then based on loading, we reckon we're aiming for around about 10, we're a few weeks in, 10 to 12 uh, jumps as a max per player based on the rest of their physical load through the week. So automatically, I'm fr- I've got a frame for the decisions that I make as a coach because there are some very clear boundaries that I've got to operate within. Um, and it means that, for example, well, a, uh, a specific game sense approach is out. Yeah. I can't use it. It also means that uh, there's a very specific time limit because of COVID regulations. It also means that if I don't want to break everybody or by our best guess and based on, and we can get stuck into the uh, parameters of how reliable uh, some of the loading parameters are. Well, it gives me a, it gives me a specific idea of what I'm going to do. I also noticed that so the group of players I'm working with are um, some are coming straight out of school. Some of them are coming straight out of academies. Some are senior academy players who are at university at Loughborough. So you've got a, a relative mixture of different players' starting points. So what do I choose to do? And one of the things, the frames of reference I've chosen is uh, cognitive load theory. I've noticed that over the past few sessions when I've tried to deploy activities that aren't really simple, really easy to go and do, even something as simple as right. Um, group of four and this is the type of movement I'd like you to deploy fourth player you're uh, you're getting the ball played off the top to you they've struggled with the cognitive load of that in addition to this it's what's what you call extraneous loads the task it doesn't matter but they've struggled then with the stuff that does matter so I've just taken all of that out and got right five-man line out unopposed straight in okay and then we can start and you can start playing around with well um, you're going to tell everybody in the lineup what that call is going to be because one of the things that they're working on are things like triggers who triggers the line out how many steps does the jumper take all of those things I'm gonna, I, and I guess if you put that on Twitter they'd say oh well they should they should learn that by guided discovery that's the wrong way to do it and then I'm thinking well I've yet to see anybody who's been able to execute a, um, a lob throw jump without having some pretty explicit instruction about how to do it. And combine that with the fact that we've got eight to 12 jumps per session and we've got 15 minutes to do it. If we deploy a guided discovery-based methodology, we are not getting anywhere here. Those are the types of decisions that I think that you start making as a coach using a PJDM-based approach. I think it's been uh, fascinating through COVID, the amount of uh, paradigms that have been absolutely blown apart and people have been forced to do things that they wouldn't necessarily do and being sort of blown away. There's been a lot of talk in the S&C community amongst uh, athletes that have not been able to touch any weights 
And the only thing they've been able to do is rest and do some speed work, maybe some body weight stuff and coming back and smashing PRs. And they're like, you know, well, actually, when you let people rest and do explosive activities uh, intermittently, and there's definitely going to be a lot of time in between them doing that because there's no one making them go to the gym and do it. You know, they're doing like a sprint session every three days. Um, It's sort of, I think it's making the scales fall from a lot of people's eyes. And, a lot of people have been forced to do unopposed stuff and seeing value in it. And I think it's been quite interesting from that perspective to, to put some decent constraints on people, make them see value and stuff. But one thing I just want to pull you up on there is co- cognitive load theory. Cause I mentioned it actually, you've mentioned it there. I think it's a fascinating thing. Could you just put that into some uh, simple Simon terms? So you trying to explain it to me. How would you explain it very simply? Yeah, when, uh, when you want somebody to learn something, you want them thinking about things that are task-specific. And if you give them a whole load of other things to think about, then it takes up a cognitive load that needs to be used, uh, that needs to be directed towards what they want to learn. So uh, in a coaching sense, if you set up a game where you're giving them 600 different rules where there's all sorts of different points to score, um, you need to be, you're trying to, you as a coach are trying to focus their cognitive resources on a specific thing rather than 100 different rules of a given game. Um, and I suppose in using that theory, there are a number of theoretical things that I believe about how learning happens. And there might also, I mean, it, for example, it wouldn't necessarily fit with a constraint based approach. And so then your professional judgment and decision-making is that you can do that in a session and you can play some games with constraints with 500 rules and stuff, but you've got to know what you're doing and why you're doing it at what time in that session with which group. And that would be your PJ. Well, I'd say, I'd say that uh, yes to the games-based approach because all that is is specific practice. But if you say, right, I'm adopting a constraints-based approach, then I'm making some really clear assumptions about how learning happens that as a result of my framing of my professional judgment decision-making that I wouldn't necessarily use. So to try and sort of wrap some of this up and give some people some stuff to go away with, because it's been fascinating. It's really, it's really good. I, I, I want to sort of, so my point, my, my takeaway, you tell me what you think about this is that I think there's um, been a lot of, um, chats and talks and webinars and coach information about more specific things so it'd be like back play or line out play or or using games or whatever but if we step back from that then we would be talking about things like uh, pcdes which would be more of an overarching principle which can apply to anything professional judgment and decision making would be something that all coaches whatever sport whatever context that they would use then to implement different approaches, be they games or constraints or things like that. Um, what else do we talk about? Pedagogical principles. So um, we'd be talking about block practice, random practice, mass practice, ways of learning. Um, these would be the things that would help you to filter all the information that's out there. They would be the tools you should go and read up on so that you can then make decisions more specifically with the group you've got in the context you've got would that be a fair assessment yeah absolutely and look i think um clearly i'm i'm also talking about the stuff that i'm really passionate about and the 
I mean, the social dimensions of coaching are also clearly incredibly important and that pedagogical stuff doesn't exclude the relationships that you build um, or the the meaning that you generate uh, from uh, coaching or being coached. All of that is front and centre as well for me. Um, But if you're going to improve the way that you do it, I think that uh, pedagogy... And some, uh, the other, some of the other things that we talked about today are fundamental and, and underpinning. Yeah, great. And uh, I think when you actually get into putting these things into practice, the thing I've noticed about PCDs is it does create a huge amount of social and psychological, obviously psychological, but sociological as well. It's like we're talking one of the groups I've been working with, Focus and Distraction Control, is what sorts of things are going to f- distract you and you know, obviously it's the other players, it's the other people in the group. And it was brilliant, brilliant from one of the kids. It's like, I was standing talking to one of the kids and said, hey, you're distracting me. <laughs> I was like, yeah, fair enough, I am. It's totally true, I am distracting. And then it just starts those conversations and then it makes them think in a slightly different way about, about what's happening rather than just thinking about the technical, tactical, whether it starts. And I think they're the kinds of things you can, they're the skills you can take out into your wider, wider world, whatever that may be, wherever you are. So thanks ever so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, where could um, people contact you to find out some more information about um, some of the, the principles and some of the ideas that we've been talking about today? Uh, probably uh, Twitter is the best place to, to get hold of me. Um, I'm sure you can stick a, a, whatever they're called, my Twitter name in the, uh, in the, in the notes, but uh, I'm at J-A-T Taylor. Yeah, we'll put that on there. And um, yeah, if, any, if anyone wants to ask you questions or whatever, um, i, I definitely reiterate what I said before is I think it's really good to have people such as yourself is like it is literally like what would Jamie think there's another guy called Andre Quinn that I've in, in, interviewed on the on the pod and it's like what would Andre if it's about SNC what would Andre think what would Andre say to me and then I'm like a coaching principal coaching intervention when I'm doing the PCD is like well, what would Jamie say what, what am I missing here because I think that's where the real value is is that you know what are you not what you're not quite getting right it's if everything's going well you're not smooth seas never made a skilled sailor as they say so um thanks ever so much thank you for all your uh help when we when we talk and we interact and i, I always find it really really beneficial and uh, thanks for all the ideas that you've um you've explained to us today no cheers simon thanks for having me on